The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, folks? We have another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. This interview is with singer, songwriter, recording artist, guitarist, Frank Stallone. And it was recorded for the radio show back at the end of last summer. So it's coming up on a year. And most of what is said is still very relevant. A lot of you might be thinking that I'm bringing this interview out because Frank Stallone has been in the news lately. Well, I can assure you that that's not the case. My late friend Monty Toller has always said, Paul, your show is not a political show. Stay out of politics. Some people might think that I'm cowardly for doing that, but it's just genuine. I have friends on all sides of every political issue. Nobody agrees with somebody else 100% on everything. And I think we can all benefit from listening to one another and trying to take into consideration the background, the feelings, and thoughts of that other person. I hope you enjoy. Let's get into the interview. You're tuned in to the Paul Leslie Hour, the show about the arts and the lost art of living. Our guest on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour is Frank Stallone. He's a singer, guitarist, recording artist, actor, the greatest singers of all time. Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett have lavished our guest with praise. He's a Grammy and Golden Globe-nominated artist, and it's a great pleasure to welcome him here. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Paul. appreciate it. So you're out in California. Yes, I am. I've been out since 79. What do you think of Southern California? Well, it has changed a great deal since I first came here. When I came here, it was flourishing. I mean, the, the film and TV business was constant. The studios were still around. I mean, it was still MGM. There were still a lot of songwriters here, a lot of music going on in town, a lot of clubs and record companies. But all that's gone now. I mean, all the record companies are gone. I mean, we had A&M. We had just tons of, you know, United Artists Records. That's kind of gone to the wayside. And as far as the studios now, you know, MGM is now Sony. And, it, and they don't really film here that much anymore. Basically, uh, they kind of cannibalized the business. So everyone's shooting overseas. They're shooting, you know, just in different states or different countries. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of become like a bit of a wasteland. And it's become, you know, very left-wing political i mean now all these actors are opening up their mouths with nonsense the kathy griffins and the johnny depps and you know instead of just staying with their art and you know they kind of make it paul like they have like a hotline in politics like they really know what's going on and most of them are just trying to get favor with studios and agents myself i don't really care because i'm just uh, doing what i like to do and save my money and i'm just playing music so I don't think I'll be getting a call from DreamWorks anytime soon, so I don't really care. It <laughs> sums it up for me. <laughs> I want to kind of go back a little bit. Your mm -hmm. formative years were in Philadelphia, and a lot of people may not know how many great musical artists came from oh, that God. corner of the country. 
Oh God! I mean, you have Mario Alonza, Eddie Fisher, Al, you know, Al. Uh, what's his name? Well, there's anyway. There's so many Hall and Oates. I mean, just great, great Al Martino. I mean, and just Eddie Fisher, and just a lot, lot. John Barrymore. I went to the same Catholic school as the Barrymores, Notre Dame, Philadelphia. I was basically I was born in New York, and as a baby, my parents moved to Maryland. So my formative years were in Maryland. And when my mother got divorced in like 59, 58, I went with her and stayed and moved to Philadelphia, which was very exciting at that time in the 50s because, you know, American Bandstand was still in Philadelphia. And uh, it was cool. It was different for me because, I mean, in Silver Spring, Maryland, it was like a sleepy little, you know, sleepy little town. And Philadelphia was a bustling city. And uh, it, was, it was quite nice. And I, I would say probably other than seeing Elvis the first time on TV when I was in Maryland and really being into the Everly Brothers and Elvis and all that's Jerry Lee. But I'd say probably my real formative years are probably in musical, probably cut in Philadelphia. You know, that's like where my first bands and everything like that. Yeah. So I would say that. Well, tell us about a few of those bands, the, the music that you mm -hmm. most identified with. Well, you know, again, like in the early days, it was, I mean, to me, it was Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis. I love the Everly Brothers and, and stuff like that. But I, I would say, you know, and also I was really in the oldies. So before the Beatles came out, you know, I was really, we used to, uh, you know, sing acapella music, you know, like, you know, stuff like Drifters and things like that. And uh, so, and then at that point, that was the era of the kind of the pop singers, like the Frankie Avalon, the Fabians, the Bobby Rydell. They were trying to really fill that slot because Elvis was, uh, you know, in the army. But I, I, what kind of hit me on the head uh, was the Beatles. I mean, the British invasion, that was that was it for me. I mean, that was it. I mean, I know when I first saw Elvis, I wanted to be a musician and singer because I was always open to him. I was singing, you know. But when the Beatles came in, that just put the other nail in the coffin as far as it doing anything else. And I was just like, I was all about the bands, even the American bands, Eleven Spoonful, the Young Bloods, the Buffalo Springfield. But all the Beatles and all the great TV shows that were on Shindig, Hullabaloo, I mean, every week, uh, Ed Sullivan. So I would say the Beatles were big for me. Kinks were big for me. The Love and Spoonful were big for me. So I was I was all that's all I was into. I mean, I really wasn't into playing baseball anymore. And so I was just into being a musician, rock musician. And that was it. And if you were to describe to somebody what is the closest to your musical heart. You mentioned a lot of those great rock acts, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you've been able to record music of, of various genres. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of a gift and a curse at the same time because I really don't have a Frank Stallone sound. I mean, you hear Rod Stewart, it's Rod Stewart. You hear a lot of groups, I mean, and, and not diminishing anything, but that's what they stay within their realm. Uh, myself, I, I can kind of consider myself a musical chameleon or schizophrenic, whatever have you. So I was, you know, I sang all kinds of music. I mean, I listened to Frank Sinatra, like you said, Tony Bennett. I loved Nat Cole. I loved all that stuff. So I sang all that stuff. So after I had some success, I said, well, let me do one of these standard albums. Because I thought I was cutting edge because there was really no one out there doing, I mean, other than Harry Nilsson did one. Such a Schmilson and Knight, which was brilliant. And Linda Ronstadt did one with Nelson Riddle. They're, they're older than I am. So for my genre generation, no one has done an album 
like that. So I figured, well, hip-hop was coming in. I guess uh, that wasn't my bag. So let me try something different where I won't have that much competition and I'll be the, you know, the top dog there. So I went into an album with the, the great Sammy Nestico, I mean, who did all of Count Basie's arranging and writing for, for many, many years. I mean, he wrote for everybody. He was one of the last of the great conductors. And then uh, I was fortunate through my friend, you know, Nancy Snosher, to uh, get Billy May to do my second big band album. And Billy May is last of the greats. I mean, he was the one that get, gave Frank his first number one. I mean, his first Grammy would come fly with me. And so Billy May is probably, you know, he's right up there with Nelson Riddle and Gordon Jenkins. He's right there. So that was my second album I did. But I don't know what happened. You know, I didn't really have management. I didn't really have anyone that got it. Even though I got great praise by him and Tony Bennett wrote the liner notes and all that stuff like that, I didn't really have the machine because it was on my own label. I didn't really know what I was doing, to tell you the truth. So I didn't really have a, a team behind me. So when the Harry Connicks and the Michael Blaze came by, you know, they had kind of a big machine behind me. You know, David Foster with Michael Ruble and Harry, you know, with the movie Harry Loves Met Sally and stuff like that. So, but I love doing those albums. I mean, and I still incorporate some of it in my show. So the tough thing is when an agent says, well, Frank, what kind of show or music do you have? I'm tempted to say variety show, but I don't want to do that because then it sounds like it's like Sophie Tucker or something like that. You know, I, so the show has variety, but it's not a variety show. I mean, I am an entertainer. I do talk to the audience and things like that. But we've been doing very well with it. You know, I have a nine-piece band. I have four horns and, you know, rhythm section and myself on guitar and singing. And uh, we've been playing uh, our home spot in California. It's Herb Alpert's Club called Vibrato. And we, we pack it every time we play there. We play there like once a month if we're not, you know, on the road. We get standing ovations every night, everywhere we play. And then people come back to me, Paul, and they say, you know what I love about your show? And I said, what? She goes, well, musicianship, I love that you do all kinds of music. So, I mean, it's more appreciative when you see it than if I tell you about it. If I tell you about it, it sounds like it's like a lounge act, which is the furthest thing from. It's not that. So, And that's why I have, believe it or not, after all these years and the gold records and stuff, I don't have an agent. I'm doing it myself. I mean, it, it's a, like a, you were asking me. It's a different world. You know, the people don't have the work ethic anymore, Paul. When I was younger, I mean, you go to places like uh, Trader Vic's, and at a happy hour, it'd be loaded with agents from all the agencies, you know, or, or the Hawaiian Luau or things like that. People don't hang out anymore. And then they, they would kind of do business and have their drinks and at the same time. So it was very easy then, opposed to now. What do you think is happening with the work ethic of people today? that that is happening? Well, Paul, I think what, what it is, is they don't have to work that hard. Everything is uh, online. Everything is social media. You don't have to sit there and type a letter. You don't have to say, okay, go out and mail this thing, messenger this. Uh, I got Joe here. I'll call you up. Let's get together for lunch. Let's get the, they don't do that anymore. Everything is texting. Everything is very impersonal. And uh, so that being said, you don't get the same results. Okay. I'll give you an interesting story. My brother, basically, Sylvester, founded CAA. CAA was basically two card tables and three agents that had left big agency and they were starting an agency. My brother at that time was the hottest actor in the world. This is like 78. He was the highest paid, biggest actor in the world. They came up to him 
And they said, listen, this is who we are. And so I goes, are you crazy? I'm not going to leave William Morris for you guys. Who are you? I mean, you haven't, you know. They said, no, trust us, trust us. Well, anyway, when Sly hooked onto that wagon, Bill Haber, Mike Ovitz, and Ron Meyer, then just they were brilliant how they catapulted that agency into the biggest agency in the world. And it really started with Sly because he was the highest paid actor. He was getting all this stuff. So all these other actors with the other agencies said, hey, let's go to CAA. Sly's getting six, seven, eight million dollars a picture, which was unheard of in the 70s. Great actors were getting 600,000. That was the top, 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 top guy. Maybe a million, Burt Reynolds. Maybe. That's top. Okay. So anyway, that being said, I was at that point was doing some acting then, you know, after Barfly. And I, could, I was having trouble getting an agency. Now, think, now, here's coming from Ron Meyer, who is legendary for always answering, returning his phone calls. Turns my call, I goes, Frankie, how are you? I said, Ron, I'm doing great. Listen, I'm having trouble, you know, after bar flying and stuff like this, finding an agency. He says, Frank, and I was wondering, you know, what do you think about CAA for me? He goes, Frank, listen, if it wasn't for your brother, it'd be no CAA. If you want to come to CAA and have that moniker or that logo on your 8x10s in those days, he goes, yeah, but you're never going to get work. You're never going to work. I said, what do you mean? He goes, because this agency is geared with guys that are phone call takers, okay, except for the top guys. So if it's between you making 60000 a picture or the same guy for the role, say at that time, who do I look like? Steve Gutenberg. And Steve Gutenberg's get 400000 They're going to go with him, no matter if you're right for the role. That's just the way it is. So you're, he goes, I would suggest you go to a boutique agency. Go to a small agency. He goes, it's not the agency, it's the agent. You could go to a small agency and someone just thinks the world of you and they're going to go out and fight for you. And that's what I did. And then I started working a lot. And I, you know, I've done 74 movies. I haven't done a film in a long time, but yeah. So that's how it worked for me. But uh, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> We're joined by singer, guitarist, songwriter, and actor Frank Stallone. What about your parents? Were they supportive of you going into the arts? Not, you know what? They were kind of, they never really had much of an opinion of anything. You know, my father was a hairdresser. He's kind of a hard guy, very opinionated and critical about everything. He always thought he was a better singer than me, which is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, but he did. That's how delusional he was. But, and my mother instilled in me, always read. My mother had a subscription to every magazine growing up. So she was always into reading and she was the one that said, Oh yeah, take guitar lessons, Frankie. But she wasn't like a, a stage mother or a doting mother. I thought, Oh, this Frank was great. She didn't really come to see me play hardly until I was in my thirties. So when I had the bands in the sixties, but she was supportive. In other words, if I wanted to rehearse with the band, she was cool about stuff like that. If I wanted to grow my hair down to my rear end, she didn't care. It was my stepfather who was a drag. But my real father was a hairdresser, and he really didn't care if my hair was long. So I didn't really come from the kind of family where you're, you know, where a lot of parents say, "Oh, my my son Frankie's so special, he's so great." But my relatives liked it, but they they thought it was something, you know, like most kids, it was just a whim. Well, I didn't think it was a whim. I knew this was going to be my life because I really wasn't that great of a student in school. I wasn't dumb. Uh, school's more of a social outlet for me. I mean, I like history and I like literature failed music miserably you know because they started out with Shostakovich and stuff so I figured I said instead of starting like with something simple they started with the classics 
No, I don't think my parents were like that. They weren't like unsupportive, but they thought my father more thought it was the passing phase. No. So it wasn't, they were, they were not stage parents at all. As we've mentioned, there's many facets of music that you do from mm-hmm. the recording, songwriting, performing live mm-hmm. like you do at Vibrato. Mm-hmm. Is there one mm-hmm. that excites you the most? You know, I got to tell you, Paul, it all excites me. You know, I don't get tired of singing Far From Over in the songs because, uh, I mean, but I, 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 that's what I'm saying. It's variety. I love all of a sudden doing a Cole Porter song with the horns, and then I sit down on a stool with my nylon string guitar and, and, and play uh, something, and I explain to the people, this is somewhat how I started out when I uh, was a solo act. You know, after my bands broke up and, you know, when I was a teenager, that's what I did when I was in New York and Florida. I was a solo act. I'd go on stage by myself with the guitar. And I always thought doing that live and doing it well kind of set me apart from the rest of the guys because that's that's the proof of if you do have talent because uh, there's nothing to fall back on. It's you and a guitar and a voice, period. That's it. That's why I have such respect for some of the old folkies like Pete Seeger. And, you know, people like that, Burl Ives, or even guys like Cat Stevens, because this, well, Cat Stevens had some fans. But I mean, the guys that were solo, it's just that it's harder. The old blues guys. I mean, it's just you and you alone. So when you die, you die by yourself on stage. So I do that. And then I love doing the big band. And then I love getting up playing electric guitar, doing some blues things. And then uh, I just mix it up. So I really enjoy it all. I mean, if someone said, hey, Frank, can you do a concert of all your big band stuff? Absolutely. I mean, I've done symphony dates. I just did one with 60 pieces. I mean, I still put the energy and the commitment into that, even though I haven't written those songs. I still, you know, do the commitment and put myself forth as a professional on that level on any genre of music, where then sometimes, you know, if I'm playing all my own stuff, it's the same thing. But I'm not someone that's like really stuck up that won't do someone else's song like I did something uh, just this week, the first time I did a, I'm going to start doing this in the shows. Uh, each show, I do a medley of someone that was inspiring for me. So this week was Gordon Lightfoot. And I love oh. Gordon Lightfoot. I think he's a great songwriter. I think he's terrific. So I did a four, I did a four song medley. I started with Carefree Highway, went into the Edmund Fitzgerald, Sundown, and ended with If You Could Read My Mind. And it went over fantastically because there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people forget Elvis didn't write songs and he, he did pretty good. He didn't do too bad. And Frank Sinatra and not everyone's Paul Simon, even Bruce Springsteen will do covers a lot when he plays live. I mean, he'll do a lot of covers. He'll do a Mitch Ryder song or whatever. So there's nothing wrong with that. So some people are just, they have to play all their own songs. So out of 18 songs, 17 songs live, if I do 11 of my own, I'm fine. I'm happy with that. I would have loved to have heard your Lightfoot tribute there. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, you know, it, I sound a little like him. I mean, I have, I, like I said, I'm a little bit of a chameleon, but I have, I'm a little bit of a chameleon because, you know, out of necessity, Paul, when you're before you, what we used to say, hey, man, before we make it, and make it was like if you got a recording deal, whether it became successful. We felt we made it, you know, because we got signed to our label. But that's what we did. You know, I mean, in bars with Valentine, we played mostly all our own material. 
all the time in the folk clubs in the 60s and stuff. And then when we had to really kind of make a living, we'd have to play like clubs. So we'd mix it up with whatever hits. But we weren't like a disco. We didn't do that kind of music. We would do we would do some old BG stuff, some Buffalo Springfield stuff, some Moby Grape stuff, and then mix it in with our own songs. So what we would do, we would just tell people, this is a song, a new song by uh, the Guess Who. And they didn't know the difference. So we'd be, do one of our songs. So that's how we got away with it. <laughs> so we were able to hone our craft at the same time. You mentioned a couple of names there, Gordon Lightfoot, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, yeah. These are artists that are still out there doing it. Yeah. Who out there that's still recording or touring do you respect the most? Hmm. Well, let's see. I, I respect the most. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I don't really listen to Springsteen that much. I, I appreciate his what he does live. He's, he's you know he's a he's a terrific performer. Gordon Lightfoot's out there playing. I don't know if their output of songs and music is anything that I would really get excited about nowadays. But I mean, it's the live show, isn't it? I mean, it's like Paul McCartney's out there. He's just incredible. But I think only very few of those guys are somewhat prolific recording all the time. And that would be, you know, Neil Young's always recording. Paul Simon, once in a blue moon, does some new material. But I don't know if they have their audience. I don't know if there's the record buying audience anymore. You know, I mean, I was kind of, it kind of ended for me when I was at Starbucks and you're looking at James Taylor and Paul McCartney. I mean, that to me pulled the curtain down on the record business. I mean, that, you know what I'm saying? It's almost like your records are now selling at gas stations instead of like the big outlet stores like Tower Records and all that stuff like that. So, but who's out there? Some of the, some of these new groups, like the Kings of Leon, I like. I mean, some of these new groups are pretty good and some of them, you know, are pretty lousy. And, but, but some of them are, you know, pretty good. You know, I went to see my guy, friends of mine and Survivor, you know, they're good friends and stuff and a bunch of other, and I think Styx was with them. And I was with a young person. He said, God, they're pretty good. I said, well, they should be. They've been doing it like 45 years. They've been together a long time. Yeah, they're real professionals, you know. And people come up to you and go, and it, it's amazing, Paul. I've been, I've been a professional musician since 1965. So that's going on 53 years coming up around January. And I've had charted records, been on TV a lot. And I still have people come up to me and go, I didn't know what you did. I didn't know you did this. I said, but what did you think I did? So, I mean, that's the funny thing. I said, did, did you think I was a stand-in for my brother? What did you think I did for a living? Why were you shocked? You knew. I, I mean, obviously, you came to see me play. So I'm just curious. And they're going, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And it, and it's kind of shocking in a way. It's not, it's not like it's shocking. It's not like, you know, I'm a household name. But, I mean, I... I've been on like every TV show of Midnight Special, Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, you name it. I was on it, David Letterman. And but there are some people that come to see me and they're like shocked. Wow, I didn't know what you did. I didn't know you could do that. I said, okay. I just wanted to know. And so my answer always, and not being mean, I said, what did you think I did though? That's that's what I'm curious about. And they go, well, I don't know. I said, okay, well. That's actually kind of, I got to tell you, Paul, that's what actually gets me off when people come see me play and they have no idea what to expect. You know, they probably think I'm like, you know, just like a really bad singer capitalizing on my brother's, you know, long gone fame or whatever. And then when they come and see the show, 
and, and you know, you're getting standing ovations. They're freaked out. And that, to me, brings joy to me. That means, okay, I've converted some non-believers or soon-to-be, in other words, people that came as non-believers are now. And that's how word spreads, and that's how we sell these clubs up. What would you say is the biggest misconception about Frank Stallone? Oh, well, let's see. The biggest misconception, I think, was that when Rocky came out, I just picked up guitar and started singing. Like, in other words, I was working at like a gas station or something. And then when Rocky came out, I just kind of clambered on to my brother's coattail. That is the biggest misconception because by the time Rocky came out, I had been a professional musician for 11 years. I mean, so I was playing five, six nights a week, four sets a night. So that's like 168 minutes of music a night playing. And you times that times six, you know, that's, uh, it's like 700 plus minutes of music a week live. And that kind of used to bug me. But, you know, again, I was young. I was naive. I had a great group. Uh, we were very good friends. We played a lot. We had a lot of fun and we were real popular. At that time, I was living in New Jersey and we real popular, you know, real popular. We played some of these clubs 130 nights and stuff like that. And so when Rocky came out, no one had an idea. I mean, I didn't have any idea when I got paid 140 bucks to stand on the street corner and sing that this movie was, was no one. How could anybody imagine an unemployable actor with mostly unknowns other than Burgess Meredith that this little movie that they thought was going to open in drive-ins that really only opened in two theaters wasn't going to get nominated for 10 Academy Awards and be probably the most beloved film that was ever made. I mean, Rocky is never off TV. It's the most shown movie in history. It's never off TV, ever, since day one. So here we are, a local band that sat there, sang on the street corner, and forgot about it and went about our business, and we were working on a deal with RCA Records at that time. So when Rocky comes out, it's a phenom. It's a phenom. It's the biggest thing in the world. All of a sudden, we can't get Sly, but let's get Frank and his band. Okay. I didn't, you know, I wasn't aware of it. I was, uh, you know, I was all about the music and stuff. But so I do these shows. Oh, Valentine, you guys sounded great. You guys sounded fantastic. Wow. So tell me about your brother. And then it would just go from that. What's it like being Rocky's brother? What's it like? So it was all this stuff. And all of a sudden, after a while, I was kind of getting it. I was so naive at the, at the beginning. And I kind of, in hindsight, understand that they're curious. I still get it now. So what's it like being Rocky's brother? I said, well, Rocky is a fictitious person. What's it like being Sly's brother? It's just like the same as if you were with your brother. You know, it'd be like going up to Boris Karloff's daughter and going, so what's it like being Frankenstein's daughter? <laughs> what's it like being the mummy's daughter? I said, you know, so they can't differentiate between the character and, and the real person. That being said, so I got past it. So, But people that have always that have seen me play get it. You know, they get it. People that, uh, they're doing a documentary on me right now, film. These guys just did a movie on John Avildsen called King of the Underdogs, which is a fantastic documentary film on John Avildsen, who directed Rocky, as you know, and just passed away. And in the interim of that, these two guys came to me and said, Frank, we want to do a movie on you. I go, really? They go, yeah. We find your career fascinating, that you've won these awards and done all this stuff, and have had like the 900-pound gorilla in the room for the past, well, 40-plus years. 
and that you that you never quit, that you still go out there and and give it your all. And he goes, most guys would have totally quit, folded up their tent because they just got rockied and ramboed to death. And I said, well, this is what I do. You know, I barely got out of high school. I don't. I can't really you know turn back and become like a banker or something. This is what I do. So I'm kind of stuck in this wonderful game of music. So they're doing a documentary. And I coined the name of it. it's called Stallone in big words and underneath Frank that is. So, and so we're in the middle of it right now. And we've, you know, we've got interviews with my brother, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Joe Montaigne. And I think we're going to get John Oates because as you know, John Oates and I played the band together and we're getting all these people that are coming on board and they're coming on board here because they've seen me play. So they know I'm not like a, a fake musician that, I didn't come up doing like theater Broadway and then, you know, all of a sudden became a famous actor and now I'm out there singing like Annie or something like that. So, I mean, I'm a real musician. So the misconception was that I just capitalized on, on my brother. And the only reason I got the songs in the movie was because of my brother. That being said, did I have access to like show him my songs? Yeah. But 70% of my songs got rejected. I mean, I, they didn't take all my songs. And, and, and what people don't realize, the movie industry is bigger than any one actor. And they're not that generous. If the song sucks, it's not going to the movie because they have more access to get other stuff. You know, like in Staying Alive, I was basically a, a broke musician. I was 32 years old. I'd lost my record deals. Nothing was going right. And I said, okay, here it is. I dedicated my whole life to music. I had basically nothing to show for it, okay? And so I came on to a lot, and I found out my brother was directing the sequel Saturday Night Fever. I said, do you think there's anything in it for me? He said, no. Bee Gees, what can I tell you? And Robert Stigwood's the producer of the movie. You know, this is the sequel to the largest musical in the history of film. So him trying to humor me actually set a fire under my butt, and said, well, why don't you just go read some music? You know, just to kind of get rid of me. So I did. I started writing music, writing feverishly. I, I took a copy of the script home and I started writing. Every three or four weeks, I would come into Paramount and people would like roll their eyes. So I'd come through the office and oh, here he is again, you know. And I'd go to my brother's office with these cassettes that I recorded and play them the songs and act out what I thought scenes. And there you go, okay. So what happened is, to make a long story short, for some reason, John didn't like the songs to the Bee Gees were, were submitting for the sequel. They got mad. They walked off the movie. They said, we don't want to do it. Screw him. Okay, so now there's major panic. Major panic on the lot because Flashdance is on the next stage. They're having a tremendous amount of trouble. And now the Bee Gees left. So now they go to the Hall of Oates, reject. They go to Billy Joel, wants too much money, reject. And then I get a phone call. Uh, Frick, I said, yeah. He goes, yeah. Remember those songs you wrote? I go, yeah. You mean the ones you rejected? Yes, I remember those songs. <laughs> and uh, he goes, well, we got a real problem, you know. But he's like telling me his problems. I'm living in like an eighty dollar a month apartment. They're telling me the problems. So, <laughs> and I had all my songs rejected. So he said, come with me. We're gonna have lunch with John Travolta. I said, okay. So Sly comes in and John's got a long face, you know, he's all like, they're all depressed because, you know, this is, this is bad. You know, this is, you know, the show must go on type attitude. So this is really a bad thing. 
the slide goes, oh, I got some music I want you to hear. Of course, he's taking credit now that he found the music, which I brought to him 20 times. So John's sitting there and he's listening to these songs. Now, he doesn't know it's me, but he's just listening to these songs. And I see him like tapping his foot, he's moving around, that, that, that. And I'm laughing watching these two because it's like Rocky meets Barbarino from Welcome Back Carter. Just the talk, you know? Hey, we got a real problem, you know, John. Yes, man, yes. You know, so they're talking back and forth. And I'm like cracking up just on that, you know, because I figure there's no way I'm going to get my songs in the movie. So then John goes, that, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I said, I, now I almost have a heart attack. Seriously, I'm eating. You know, my whole life has been failure, failure, turn down, record deals. You know, for since 1965, it's now 1983. So, and he goes, who is this? Who is this? He goes, it's Frank. He goes, Frank who? He goes, my brother here. In other words, like I was Fredo. Like he thought, again, like what you're saying, I didn't know you could do that. I said, well, what did you think I did? Okay, <laughs> that's what happened. And, and on Monday, they start dropping my songs in the movie. Far From Over was the opening of, of the movie. So at the end of the day, now I'm being treated like royalty. They put nine of my songs in that movie. Okay. And I'm like freaking out. You have to understand to me, it's even emotional. I talk about because it was a whole life of just rejection, but not, not without trying. It's because it's a, it's a tough business. You know, no one owes me any favors. So record goes up like the number one that's in Europe. I'm traveling around. I'm on planes. I have my fan. I got, you know, People, A&R people take me on radio tours, and I'm loving it because this is all I ever wanted to do. You know, this is unlike other people that complain, oh, well, you know, it's really tough. I said, no, it's not tough. It's great. This is what you aspire to do. Don't complain because there's many people out there that have also been in the trenches and never got a break. So be happy for it. So, but that all fell through the wayside. But at the end of the day, I mean, I was very honored to be, you know, nominated for a Grammy, nominated for a Golden Globe. I lost my Oscar nomination. I'll never know how, but I do now. Now, this is a great story, Paul, if I can tell you this. Oh, I'm yeah. get, doing the cover on my first album with Greg Gorman, who went on to be a great photographer, but this is his first album. So I was still getting the treatment. I was working on my solo album and everything like this. That day was the day they were announcing the Oscar nominations. So you have to understand, in those days, it's different than it is now. So the Grammys, the only songs that were nominated for films were What If Feeling, Flashdance, Maniac, Flashdance, Far From Over, Staying Alive, a song from Tender Mercies that never got past 99 on the chart by Robert Duvall, and a song from Yentl that never went past 90. Didn't even do anything, okay? So for the Golden Globe and Grammys, it was just the same five songs because there were no other songs, Okay. So I'm sitting there, blah, blah, we're celebrating. We did the album shoot. I'm, you know, we're coming pre-celebrating. There with my girlfriend, all this, everyone. All of a sudden, I get a call to go, oh, Frank, your brother's calling you. I go, really? So he's calling me, and I'm figuring, God, who died? You know, why would my brother be calling me? I said, is everything okay? I go, who died? Not thinking at all that I would be nominated, get the nomination for Academy Award. Not that I thought I would win, but there were no other songs. He goes, I got bad news. I said, what? Who died? And he goes, uh, you didn't get nominated. I said, what? What do you mean I didn't get nominated? There's no other songs. No, they took your song away. Took my, my song was number one. They took my song away. I said, what did they replace it with? I swear to God, another song from Yentl 
that was more obscure than the one that bombed before. Hmm. I said, so why would they take my song out? Mine was the number one record. Why wouldn't they take Tender Mercy song out that never did anything? So I was really bugged on that because that would have been really nice to have had an Academy Award nomination. Even though I was up for consideration, they had, you know, pages out and things. So then I realized it's 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 the uh, what's it the songwriting team, whatever it is, the husband wife team, famous song the Bergmans. I said, well, that's why because they got a lot of sway and pull and Streisand does. So this was my first big shot. So I got I got hosed on that one. But it would have been nice to be nominated because then it would have been like my brother and I, two brothers were both nominated for Academy Awards. You know, even though I thought either Maniac or What a Feeling would win. So, but again, that was another, you know, bitter pill to swallow. But that's how it goes. What is the best compliment that you've ever received? Oh, God. And best compliment ever received? God, I love your music. I love your how you play guitar. Like something like that. And it, and it can come from anybody. When I'm complimented on my, on my craft. You know, I don't care about compliments. Oh, you look really good or this. It's more about the music. I love that song. Or I get I get things, I mean, I get things all the time on, on the internet. You know, your music really helped me through a bad time. And again, I'm not like, you know, I'm not Paul Simon or Cat Stevens or things like that. But God, the song you did, like an obscure song I did, like Over the Top or something like that. So it's not really one compliment. It's usually it can come in various forms and, you know, and I really take them serious. And some people say really lovely things. They do. They really say lovely things on the internet and this really heartfelt. And then there's jerks out there. Oh, the reason you made it because your brother, I mean, I said, you know what, why don't you get a life and why don't you maybe do some background before you open your mouth? Those are things I get. That's the things I get really pissed about. Cause I know when they're saying it, cause I know I can sing, I know I can play. Because I wouldn't be able to do it for a living for 52 years if I couldn't. So when they say stuff like that, that gets me aggravated. But most people are very kind, Paul. They're, you know, most people are really nice. And that makes me feel good. See, I'm not jaded because I came up the hard way. I'm not jaded you know, when people like are sitting there having a great time watching the show, really enjoying themselves. Oh, yeah, I brought my mom to come see you. I've had people come from overseas to come see me. And I appreciate that. Unlike I went to see Bob Dylan concert, I walked out. I said, this is the worst concert I've ever seen in my life by this fantastic artist. He doesn't give a crap. He doesn't care. He didn't play one song anyone knew. He didn't talk to the audience. He didn't engage the audience. He just sat there. He sounded like garbage. And I had the best seats in the house. And I walked out. I said, this is a ripoff. And all you people should walk out. And he should be ashamed of himself, this great artist. I said, you know what? I've seen the Stones. The Stones go on stage. They'll play all their hits. They're the best. You go see Neil Young, he'll play songs. You see Sinatra play all songs, but not Bob Dylan. I said, you know what? If you announce this tour that he's on tour and he's playing all new songs, four people would show up. So it's really a disservice to me. If I have to sing Far From Over and Take You Back, never going to give you up to the day I die, and that's what the people want to hear, and that's what they pay their hard-earned dollars for, I'll do it. And I'm not selling out. I'm giving the people what they want. It's not me shoving stuff down their throat that they don't, they don't want. They're paying the tickets because they want to hear those songs. So that's so I'm kind of an old school guy like that, Paul. Hmm. You, know? you mentioned the documentary a few moments ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. What else is, is coming up in the world of Frank Stallone? Well, believe it or not, 
I'm trying to find an agent. It's incredible. Millions of records. We have a great show. I cannot, as you were asked me before, how's the business changed? I cannot get an agent to come out and see the show. It's always like this. Ah, well, we're busy. I said, so you cannot, you, even if you're contemplating handling me, you can't find 90 minutes out of your week to come see an act that makes a pretty good, you know, when casinos, I make a lot of money when I place places, that it's handed to you. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So I'm putting together something now. I'm putting together a package tour thing with some acts. I can't really talk about it, but it's going to be pretty amazing called the Music and Movie Tour. It'll be acts that are involved in film that were involved with film and myself, and there'll be a great package. So I'm just going to do it myself. But again, you have to find somebody that'll really, there's a laziness out there that it's, that's unbelievable. No one really hustles. Nobody really wants to put the effort in. So I feel sorry for a lot of these kids in the business coming up because there's not many venues to play and everything is, you know, internet, everything is internet. And, you know, when I first came to California and Jersey, there were clubs everywhere. You could play a different club every night. Now these poor kids have to pay the club so they can play there. They have to pay the club and they have to go out and sell tickets because the club owners are too lazy to get off their butts and promote their own venue. So, I mean, I'm happy I came up when I came up and I feel great. I'm in better shape. My birthday will be Sunday and I'm in better shape and I was always in good shape. I'm in good shape now as I was when I was 30 and I'll be 67. It's like a prize fighter. I have to be in shape for the kind of show I do. It's like Mick Jagger runs like five miles a day. He has to be in shape. He could never do the show he does if he wasn't, you know? Yeah. What is the best thing? Not just in music, but the best thing about being Frank Stallone. Well, sometimes I get good seats. <laughs> that now, uh, one thing, best thing about being Frank Stallone is that I don't mind being Frank Stallone, and I'm I'm very proud of my brother's accomplishments. I don't walk around with a heavy chip on my shoulder. I really enjoy what I do. I mean, I wish I could play more. I really enjoy what I do. I don't sit around. I never was a guy that sat around like with a notebook and wrote poetry and wrote songs every day. I was never like that. And, you know, it's really funny. I read Clapton's book. He goes, yeah, usually when I'm not uh, on tour, I don't even play or write. I'm out fishing most of the time. Or that's what he does. He fishes and bird hunts. That's it. And, you know, with Jeff Beck, he goes, yeah, I'd rather work on my cars. So I don't feel bad. There are some people that are like demonic. You know, they have a reading room. They have to sit and write every day. I don't have to do that. You know, my feelings are kind of on my sleeve. I don't have to sit there and write. Now, here's tonight is an interesting thing. Tonight, they're doing the 30th year of Barfly, the movie I was in, that they consider to be for Best Supporting Actor. And I'm going to it. I wasn't going to go to it. And it's going to be at a theater. And the director, Barbe Schroeder, is going to be there and do a Q&A. And I think, I'm, I think I might be the only actor there. I mean, you know, Faye Dunaway, I'm sure, is not going to be there. So it's kind of an old theater in Hollywood, the Arrow Theater. So that should be kind of interesting. People remember me mostly of all the films I've done, either from either Barfly or Tombstone. But they don't really recognize me in Tombstone because I don't look, you know, I have a big honky mustache and derby. But so I'm remembered for that stuff. And uh, that's great. That's great. So that's going to be really quite a bit of fun. That kind of stuff I like. 
I just like when people come say, hey, man, I saw you in this thing, or Frank, I heard the song. You're really good. I like the music. I really appreciate it. That's the stuff I kind of dig. Just people, regular people come up. And most people are pretty nice, you know? You got some dips out there, but, you know, what can I tell you? You're very, very down to earth. I try to be. You know what? I try to be. I see, you know, I live out here, you know, I am the brother of the most famous action star in the history of movies, okay? So I've been around it a long time, but I see these people. I go to restaurants. I see these girls come in, you know, with their sunglasses on, with a baseball hat and their hoodies. Like, no one really cares. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I've seen Ava Gardner walk into a restaurant, you know, or Lana Turner when I was a kid. You girls are not even a pimple on their butt. No one knows who you are or cares. And you're coming in like the Scarlet Pimpernel, all covered <laughs> up. No one cares. So I went to a restaurant a few days ago. It was just like outside place in Beverly Hills. I'm walking in with my brother. We're just sitting there. And all these other people, these wannabes, are coming in with their hoodies and their sunglasses, like a, like an attitude. Like, no one cares. And the <laughs> thing is, and, and I sit there, and, I, and I've, I've been around them all. I've been around Jimmy Stewart. I've been around Gene Kelly. I've been around them all. And they were like the most nicest down-to-earth people you ever met. Because they all came from somewhat humble beginnings or whatever. Not that I came from like dire poverty. I lived in poverty, but I didn't come from it. And I see these other people. It's like, it's, it's, what makes me sick about Hollywood right now is this sense of entitlement. This sense of like entitlement for doing nothing. Because yeah. you have a nice set of boobs and you have a nice rear end. You think that is your carte blanche into show business. And I've said it many times. I'm writing a book called Don't Let the Palm Trees Fool You. People <laughs> kill themselves out here. People have stuck their heads in ovens. People have jumped off buildings, Hollywood side, because they don't get it. I mean, if you read the book, uh, Nathaniel West, Day of the Locust, or City of Net, this is a vile, mean, rough, dangerous business. So if you're thinking you've gotten off the bus from Idaho because you were the prom queen and you did the sound of music in high school, and you think you're going to come in this town and own it, you're not. Because there's tons of other girls that are better looking than you that are coming in, and there are also girls that went to Yale Drama School that are waiting tables, that are really skilled. So you better have a thick skin, because I go in, I figure most likely I'm not going to get the part. But I go in, I study my lines, you know, and I do it, and the chances are I probably won't get the part. Usually they have the part cast in their mind anyway. But these people get, like, psychotic. It's like when you see the movie Tootsie, when he's saying you got to have, like, a job or something. But, you know, it's, so I'm surrounded by that. Girls that really don't have any form of income, but they're driving a Porsche with a Rolex watch. So I said to my friend, I said, can you not put two and two together? <laughs> she's wearing a $15,000 watch and driving a $100,000 car, and she's 24, and she has no form of employment. Hmm. So they go, what do you think she does? I said, let me guess, a professional mattress? Yes. So, <laughs> and, 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 and Paul, that is running rampant in this town. I said, all you have to do is put together what it would cost to have these things and that you don't have a job. So when they go, well, I'm an actress, model, whatever, I said, the thing you should be concerned about is the whatever. Okay? <laughs> the whatever is kind of a communist title there. So... But to me, I came to town in a flannel shirt and a Datsun 240Z with hair down to my shoulders, with my guitar, 
with not a care in the world. And I was who I was. So I knew exactly who I was. So when people ask me what I do, I guess I can show you what I do right now. I'll take this guitar and I'll sit there and sing and, and that's it. So when you say this, like a model actress, I said, so what have you modeled and what have you acted in? I mean, I've got four giant scrapbooks of stuff that I've done. So I was never ashamed of doing what I did. I came, you know, my father was a hairdresser. My mother worked. My grandfather was a barber. They were immigrants. I'm not ashamed. What I'm proud of is that where I came from and where we went to. to. So I'm very patriotic in a very unpatriotic city in a way, a very left city. And I don't really care what people's politics are. It's fine. I mean, I respect everyone's politics. But I am from, uh, you know, I'm the old Yankee Doodle Dandy kind of guy. You know, the American dream, like, you know, the grandmother came over on the steamship with kids that could speak the language. So I'm part of that generation. But I'm also part of the artsy-fartsy generation. I wouldn't say fartsy, but I like the artsy. So, but I, I really, I love what I do. That's, that's all I can say. How would you define Frank Stallone at heart? Mm, very immature. You know, I still wear my Colt six shooters while I'm watching old westerns. If that makes any sense, I mean, very. Uh, you know, I have guitars all over the house, everywhere. I got guitars in my bathroom. I got guitars everywhere in my house. I'm a rabid collector of stuff. I'm almost bordering on being a hoarder, but I'm not. Or, or maybe I'm a neat hoarder. How's that? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Like I'm a discipline, discipline hoarder. Like, I have one of the best boxing collections in the world going back to the 1880s. I love that stuff. I love hunting for antiques. I would say I love my guitars. And, again, I, I am, like, the biggest fan of things, like old movies and old music. I'm just a fan. I can't help it. I can sit there and watch Gone with the Wind, Clark Gable, Mel Manhattan, Melodrama. I can watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Meet John Doe. I can watch those movies forever and still get a buzz. I could still cry at Yankee Doodle Dandy, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I am a fan of talent. I'm not a fan of people that phone it in, that are making tremendous amounts of money. And, you know, like I was never a fan of Madonna. I always thought she was a charlatan. And I just, I don't like that kind of stuff. I really always liked talent, you know, and very respected. Like I think Billy Joel is a fantastic talent, you know. I think Elvis in his own way was just something different, iconic. I, I, I describe it myself, I'd say I'm a fan. I don't think I ever really grew up fully in the sense that I'm still still a ham. I still you know, kind of say what I want to say. But I can say things to people that someone else would say and they take the wrong way. There's, there's a way people have a, a sense of humor that they can kind of pull it off, you know. And, and I think you're born with that. I remember I did the Mike Douglas show and Bob Hope was on with us. And I was... In the back room with Bob Hope, we were talking. Of course, I was enamored. It's Bob Hope. And I really had him laughing his ass off sitting on the couch. And he was really funny. Like they say, he had joke writers, but he was funny, though. You can have all the joke writers you have, but if you, if you have no delivery system. And I have a picture. I have it downstairs. It's one of my favorite pictures. I have no shirt on with a towel around my neck. Arm in arm with Bob Hope, because I just we just done the show live, Mike Douglas. So those are the things that I cherish. I'm like a fan. Like I have a picture that I also cherish of Jimmy Stewart, my brother and I, all arm in arm, and our tuxedos at a function. I mean, come on, man, Jimmy Stewart. I mean, those are movie stars. You know what I mean? 
Very cool. Those, the, they go on forever. Or sitting there talking with Gene Kelly. I was sitting there with Gene Kelly talking. He goes, hey, Fino, he had that kind of high voice, Pittsburgh. He says, give me Kerry. I said, I, I had no idea what he talked about. I turned around. Hello, Kerry Grant. How are you? I go, wow. Kerry <laughs> Grant. Jesus Christ. And people go, oh, do you want to meet this? I said, no, I don't care about these new actors. I'm sitting here. There's Lana Turner over there. It was one of those functions. And I was like, seriously, and I'm at like 35 years old. I'm like a 12-year-old. Can't help myself. Because I remember the first time I have a great picture of Frank Sinatra and myself backstage. Now, you have to understand, my brother's the biggest movie star in the world. So I'm basically unaffected by anybody. All of a sudden, the guy goes, you want to meet Frank? I said, are you kidding? So I'm there. I'm walking back. Uh, seriously, I swear to God, I'm walking up to Frank Sinatra. He's standing outside his trailer, like his plaque's ready to go on. And my knees are shaking. I, I'm, 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 I'm dumbfounded because I'd seen this face since I can't remember a time in my life where I had not seen that face. And you could tell it's Frank Sinatra. You know what I'm saying? And I yeah. walk up and I'm like, and I'm like, kind of babbling, said, this is Frank Storm. Oh, hi. I, I, I said, Mr. Sinatra, do you want to get a picture? He goes, no problem, my young man. And we have this picture. I'm there like, wow. And I met him after that, you know, a few functions and stuff. I met him. And that to me, man, he announced me. When you talk about that quote, now how about this? I'm at the Hollywood Bowl. Frank Sinatra's playing. I just done the Billy May album, okay? And Frank knew what was going on. You know, he knows what, he knew what was happening out there. And I'm sitting there with a lousy date, which was, I, which was, to me, I should have had a lobotomy. How do you go to a nighttime show with Frank Sinatra with a piece of cardboard for a date? Okay. So that was my bad on that one, right? So I'm sitting there. I'm not getting any attention from this girl. Here's Frank Sinatra under the stars singing. I'm going, oh my God, can't get better than this, right? End of the show, tradition was Don Rickles would come out with two glasses of uh, Jack Daniels. And they said it was a great show. And he had Frank a glass. And Frank would go salute the post. And I swear to you, as God is my witness, I'm sitting there. And Frank Sinatra's there. He goes, is uh, Frankie Stallone here? I, I, I almost had a heart attack. Seriously. He goes, I heard your new album with Billy Mae. Knock my socks off, kid. Salute. And he saluted the audience. I... I I, I was catatonic. I, I I was I never. That mean, it's like that was like the Pope. You know what I'm saying? And all these people all of a sudden started looking at me because I was just there. They didn't know who I was. And so now this girl's all over me like a cheap suit. The girl I was with, you know, the the you know weekend at Bernie's, you know. So <laughs> I sent her home in a cab, and I just had a good night hanging out. And it was the. Uh, but so I've had some really wonderful. You know, I've had some really wonderful times and you know and i don't mind sharing it with people because it was just like frankie lane billy Eckstein, all these classics that are somewhat forgotten now you know but they these were a part of my life this is you know this is what made me who i am you know all these little just little moving parts and you and you take or you receive something from something and that's when what you become i think god gave me the gift of voice gave me the gift of you know, having a little bit of the ham in me and the, you know, the, I have no fear of performing. Some people are backstage vomiting, going to the bathroom, not me. I'm sitting, say, I want to get on stage. So I'm real comfortable with it. Some people are just like, Bob Hope was like that. He was great. He'd just sit there, you know, George Burns, they couldn't wait to get on stage. 
But there's some people that do have, and it's, it's sad. Some people do have stage fright. So I don't care. Uh, everything's happening on stage. I've been electrocuted. I've had shit thrown at me. You know, everything. So there's nothing. So if I get applause, that's good. <laughs> you know? Well, I can see why they are making this documentary. You have so many great stories. Well, isn't our life made up of stories, Paul? You know, I mean, that that's our life is our life is one story. It's a continuous chain of events and things like that. Some good, some bad, you know, I mean, some horrific, some sad. And, you know, there's a lot of sad things, too, you know, in, in my life. But I can't, you know, listen, my mother's 96 years old. She's full of piss and vinegar. She still drives, goes to Pilates three days a week. She sounds like she's 30 years old on the phone. She's 96. <laughs> Okay, so wow. this is the life I grew up. I said, Mom, listen, my birthday's Sunday. She goes, I don't remind me. It makes me feel old. I said, Mom, you are old. You're four years away from 100. It's not like you're 70, you know? So that's, that's the kind of hooch she has, you know? So, and my father was a tough guy, too. He lived in 92. He's tough. Up to the day he died, he's a tough guy, you know? So I have, I think, taking care of myself, I have good genetics. And, uh, and my brother, look, Sly, 71, you know, I mean, he's still doing, he's doing a movie with Jackie Chan. So I'm very blessed, man. I, you know what? Sometimes we get down on ourselves and feel sorry for ourselves. But, you know, in the big picture of things, I'm really blessed. I mean, you know, how many guys can really, I mean, even what would you do? You love what you do. I can tell. I've listened to some of your things. You get to interview whoever you want and yeah. you get the story. And it's a great life, all right? I agree. Yes. I mean, it's great. We get to wake up and do anything we want. I get to wake up and go play on stage or wake up and play someone in a movie and get paid for it and have fun at it. So we, we don't tolerate the whiners. The guy's going, well, Lincoln's really hard. I said, no. What's hard if you can't walk? You know, yeah. if you have to have something to help you or you're blind, that's hard. Okay. Like I talk to these kids, I say, you never had a tough day. You never woke up going, you know, I might get beat up going to school back and forth. You know what? My parents might not be able to pay the rent. We might get evicted via streets. We might, I can't, we might not have food. There's little things we take for granted. And I am, you know, I, I'm not the richest guy in the world. I'm okay. But so what? I know some of the richest guys in the world. And guess what? They're miserable. They would love to be doing what I'm doing. Hmm. You know? <laughs> Anyone who wants more information? They can visit the website, frankstallone.com. Very glad we had this opportunity. And also Twitter and Instagram. Instagram is very difficult to find me. It's frank.stallone. Frank.stallone. I'm, I'm very simple. And on Twitter, I'm at Frank Stallone. So I keep my life very simple. And my brother's mad at me. He goes, well, how did you get this at Stallone? I said, because... You just got into computers like a week ago. And when it first came out, I, I took the names. And now it's a nightmare that he's on Instagram and Twitter because now he tries to censor me. Yeah, you shouldn't really say that. You know, it makes me look, it makes you look bad. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't want to offend you. God forbid. <laughs> so, so that's, we get in little wars like that, you know. And, you know, it was my niece says, you know what Uncle Frank just said on Instagram? This guy, you know, sometimes I get a little raunchy, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing a few things. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I tell you what, the, what blew up was when Sly got robbed for the Oscar for Creed. I, I just went, I couldn't take it. I was ballistic because he so deserved the Oscar for that. I mean, just for the body of work over forty years, and even the guys he was up against, 
thought he should have won. I mean, I mean, everyone thought he won. I mean, he won the Golden Globe. He won the Critics Award, which he never won. And it was like it was the best role of his life. So when he won, so when that other guy won from a movie that nobody saw, nobody knew who he was, I mean, that's even on video. I freaked out. And I just went off on Twitter and Instagram. I just went ballistic because I knew I was right. 99.9% of the people responded said, you are right. I said, Mark Ryan, nobody knows who he is. and Nobody will know who he is or remember him. Okay. And uh, so I've, that's one time. And then, oh, boy, I had CBS calling me. Or I said, I gave you my statement. I don't have to give you another statement. My statement is my brother got ripped off. And everyone knows it. And that's it. So what statement do you want me to like expound on? Did you see Bridge of Spies and did you see Creed? It's self-explanatory. One guy's in the movie for eight minutes and the other guy's in the whole movie <laughs> doing a great job. So I said, it's the second time my brother got ripped off for Rocky. I said, I think you should create a new character. <laughs> <laughs> you lost in Rocky one and Creed. I think you better put that one to sleep. But no, he's doing another Creed, believe it or not. So... We'll see what happens. But uh, he's a good guy. We're very close. We fight like old ladies, but we're very close. In closing, for our listeners out there, mm -hmm. they could be anywhere. They could be any age. They could be mm -hmm. whatever, fill in the blank. What would you say mm -hmm. to those people who are tuned in? I would say, coming from me, if, if you are a fan or you would like to know or you become a fan, I am open. I do answer my emails. I do answer my Twitters. I do answer my Instagrams. And, and, and the people that have followed me over the many years, I'm very, very grateful for them. And uh, they're, they're wonderful people. Go to my website. Sign up on the mailing list. You know, who knows? We could pop to your town like the monkeys, you know. You never know where we're going to pop up. We're always open to communicate with our fans. Paul, I really appreciate you contacting me for this. You do wonderful work. I've, I've listened to your last interview you did with Liv Taylor, Livingston Taylor, who's a great guy. I did a show with him years ago. He's a yeah. very articulate character. He's a very bright guy. He's a good guy. Well, you thank know? you for that. That means a mm -hmm. lot. Well, thank you. All right. I hope our paths cross again soon. Thanks, Beautiful. Paul. I appreciate it, man. All right. God bless. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>